Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I hear voices in my head. They counsel me. They understand. They talk to me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. You got shoes in your religion. All designed to keep you safe. I'm hearing voices in my head. They counsel me. They understand. And they're telling me it is time for another feature show here on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. My name is David Hockney. And continuing on from a part one edition of a previous feature show, we are now continuing on with the Randy Orton Profile Show. Yes, it's time for part two of the very fun-filled, detailed career of the legend killer, the Viper, the Apex Predator, and everything else in between. So, but before we get into any, anything else, if you haven't listened to part one of our Randy Orton uh, profile show, make sure to check out on our back catalog, Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, and all good Android podcasting sites. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Suplex Retweet. And be sure to get involved with our community page with all the discussions, debates, topics, and yeah, just general banter. So, if you haven't listened to part one of the Randy Orton feature show, I'm going to give you this one opportunity to pause the recording, go back and listen to this, and come back and then resume this show. So this is your one warning. Go and watch the part one now. Spoiler, he dies at the end. Fuck's <laughs> <laughs> sake, Scott, you ruined my segue. I think I made it better. Okay, you've watched part one now? Good. Right, welcome to part two. Uh, but before we go any further, let's introduce uh, today's panel. You might remember them from last week's feature show on the best and worst Money in the Bank winners. So let's introduce them here and now. We have the man who's delved into a new world of wedding, photography and videography. It is Daniel Campbell. Thank you very much, Troy McClure. You might remember me from other shows as Book It and Quiz Showdown on that YouTube channel that never happens anymore. Oh, well, maybe the content's still there. And to be honest, there was a lot of good content there. So don't forget uh, to check out the YouTube Damn channel. Right, there was. Can, yep, so you can check out Quiz Showdown, Book It, and a whole bunch of other stuff produced by this man right here. You know, a lot there were of... some marvellous quizzes hosted by the three people currently being heard on the show right now. So, <laughs> yeah. It was some great content on YouTube. Best content you could ask for. Absolutely the best. You know, there was We're no going to talk about wrestling for 24 hours. Please stop. Please stop <laughs> with those voices. There's another voices I want to hear in my head. 
It's sharp. Sharp, I've not introduced you yet. It still exists, though. You're messing with the natural <laughs> order of things. There is one thing you, that's also guaranteed in this world, and that sometimes you don't get what you ordered. And I specifically ordered a McLopez with cheese uh, for this panel, but unfortunately I've just been stuck with the cheese. It is Mr. Number 44 himself. It's Scott McLeod. Scott, how are you? You ordered a number 44. That's the McLo- That's just the cheese and the mic. You went the McLopez with cheese. You got to order number 43. You've been told that on numerous occasions. Oh, Dave. damn it. Anyway. Damn it. That was the mistake I made. So it looks like I just got the cheese instead. But, um... Anyway, thank you both for joining. And see for Scott, it was actually you that hosted part one of the Randy Orton profile show, and yet the task has now been handed over to me for for part two. I mean, what happened? Did you just get bored or something? Oh, I just wasn't asked. Like, <laughs> I just didn't get asked for some reason. You know, and I don't, people might remember me on the Money in the Bank winner show. I don't remember it because I wasn't on it. But you know, <laughs> Andy also joined me for part one of the uh, Randy Orton show. They're not here because they are to a Randy Orton show what uh, Sim Snooker and Manu were to Legacy and that they were there so briefly and now you forget they were ever there. Yeah, I think that's the role that Ryan Dunleash had, you know, the work experience fella who was on last week. You know, I mean, he offered some good insight, but for some reason or another, he decided to take his uh, his annual leave uh, this week. So I'm a bit disappointed and I think that's going to reflect uh, on his Saturday Draft Live scorecard at the, the end of the season. So... But the, which is only um, two weeks left of that to go. So hope he pulls out uh, a crack in performance for the remaining two seasons of our SummerSlam Saturday Draft Live season, which you can also listen on our back catalogue. So plenty of content there, including not just the feature show, but also ESSR Central hosted by Ross McLeod. So plenty of content there. And don't forget, this is your last warning. Make sure you watch part one of the Randy Orton Profile Show before you listen in. All right, last chance. Go watch it now and then come back when you're ready. Let's uh, let's pick up where we left off from part one, and that was still dead. Eh? <laughs> I'll just just continuing on the point from uh, Scott's summarization of the last one. He's still dead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's pick up let's pick up yeah. from the tail end of part one, where we talked about Orton and the formation of Legacy. Now, I'm going to start off with the conversation here, where like. Orton forming legacy, you know, there was a few speed bumps in the form of like Simstuka and Manu and stuff, but having that final product with Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase, uh, Daniel, do you think that sort of really propelled Randy Orton towards not just main event status, but also like ultimate heel level status? It was an ev- it was a natural evolution to pardon the pun for Orton because like he'd went from being a cog in the wheel of a group like Evolution to being the leader of a group. So it was a clear sign of how far he had came at that point. In terms of, you know, propelling him to main event status, like, Orton was already by this point a multiple-time world champion. Mm. This was, I think, just the next natural step for him to be a leader. You know, he would, it would allow Cody and Ted to learn from him to study some tricks. And it, it worked well for them. In the, well, it worked well for one of them in the end. The other one... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just it was a good path for Orton, and I mean, yeah, maybe the blow off to it, maybe not so good, but hey, we'll get there at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that brings us nicely into the year of 2009, and Scott, I think this is where Randy Orton just continued to add to his accolades of, you know, what was already a, a stacked 
CV in terms of his WWE career because in 2009 he won the the Royal Rumble and went on to main event WrestleMania that year, but not before you know progressively taking out the McMahons, you know, one at a time, taking out Shade, he RKO's Stephanie kisses her while Triple H is handcuffed to the ropes, and then he went on um, claiming that he suffered from intermittent explosive disorder, where he basically takes a flaky within the space of a few minutes and then calms down. Like, what did you think of the, the build for this match in what was already a stacked WrestleMania? I mean, intermittent explosive disorder doesn't sound like a mental issue. It just sounds like Graham McRobbie after a bad curry. But, <laughs> but like, Orton winning the Rumble, I think that was an inevitable thing that was going to happen. And the fact that the legacy were so involved in basically going up to the final four of them, helping them you know, eliminating the three of them all working together throughout the match, and then them being together during this feud with Triple H, and then the fact that it would carry over to a six-man that they like you be involved in, so they got the main event backlash, so uh, these guys were kind of come along with Orton, like, the bike extension, they were kind of running about the main event scene, which was great experience for them. Mm-hmm. The only issue with this great build for WrestleMania between Orton and uh, Triple H was it paid off in one of the most boring WrestleMania main events of all time. Because everyone was knackered after Sean V Taker, uh, and sadly, it would it would be the second time Triple H may have entered WrestleMania when he shouldn't have. Uh, and Daniel Scott sort of alluded to that. You know, I think Triple H and Orton. You know, even though they were main eventing WrestleMania that year, it felt like a bit of a wet fart given you know the fallout from uh, you know Undertaker and Shawn Michaels practically stealing the show. But. Um, the, this main event also had that stipulation where, you know, if Triple H got disqualified, he would actually lose the championship. Do you think, given how bitter the feud was, you know, given things like the home invasion, the unsanctioned match with Shane, like, do you think there should have been potential for, like, this match to possibly be a, a stipulation match, ideally a, a no-disqualification match? I would have won up to I would have made a hell in a cell. Me personally, like, that was a, that was a storyline that could have naturally gone into hell in a cell for them. Because then that way it's a case of there's no legacy, no one can help Triple H and, and no one can help Randy. Like It's just the two of them on their own and it's a very unhinged Triple H at this point. Like mm-hmm. yeah, the the rug was pulled out from under them with the whole, you know, idea of having Taker Michaels go ahead of them. Like the story goes that when Triple H was in the the locker room, like getting his wrist taped up for the match, Randy came in and Triple H just looked over and went, dude, we're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they they knew right away, and then to go out with a stipulation like that, like, if Triple H gets disqualified, Randy Orton will win the championship. Like, you know Triple H is going to bend the rules, use his weapon, and that's it. Like, Which weapon? Sledgehammer. (laughs) Just had to clarify (laughs) that. There's only one McMahon dealing with weapon issues. Um, Well, hang on, which, which, which sledgehammer, though? Hmm. Uh, it's the it's the wooden one. It's not the genetic one. Uh, <laughs> Careful with how you use the term wood. I <laughs> know. Uh, what could I should I? Oh! Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that. That's that. Also, stipulations like that do my boxing because they telegraph the finish to me. Mm. It's like you know what was it? SmackDown a couple of years prior. Dolph Ziggler and Edge. If Edge uses the spear, he loses the title. Guess what? He used the spear. Mm, yeah. like, I mean, I mean, they've used that kind of stipulation before. You know, you're 
you get you like use a weapon, you get still disqualified, you lose the title. Like they did it as recently as like the last NXT show with Braun Breaker, they've done it. They would do it with Orton later on. And it can be okay a simulation, but it's not a main event of WrestleMania simulation, or as, as Daniel was saying with the Hell in a Cell. Eventually they should have went the complete opposite route and let them both just bar each other with as many weapons as possible because, you know, you watch that match back for the most part, you know, it's the main event of WrestleMania, but you wouldn't know about how silent everyone's just sitting there just like Right, I've had my fill of wrestling. Can, I, can we finish this up? I need to beat the traffic. Hi. Yeah, it's like, I think it was referred to as sort of the zero tolerance rule. You know, the champion can lose the title via disqualification, etc. But we will get to that in just a bit because that did play into Orton, one of Orton's best feuds during this time. But go looking at the rest of 20, 2009, he actually had a lot of high-profile stipulation matches against, you know, full-on main event talent. Like, somewhere between backlash and uh, extreme rules you know he had a sort of mini feud with batista where batista won and then vacates the following night orton regains the title as a result but then he goes on to defend against triple h again in what was a last man standing match on raw which ended in a no contest but then he actually ended up doing a three stages of hell match with triple h at the bash um and to be honest, I think that's the first time we've seen a, a three stages of a hell match since about 2004, where, again, it was... Oh, no, it wasn't 2004, it was 2002. My mistake. It was Triple H, Shawn Michaels at Armageddon in 2002. But yeah. do you think, you know, with the WWE having fully transitioned to, into the PG era by that point, I think it was about a year into the PG era, like, did a three stages of hell match feel as brutal as you'd hoped, given that, you know, it was... Uh, regular one-on-one, no disqualification, and then followed by a stretcher match. But Daniel, what do you think? They could have lost the stretcher match. Like, mm. I think they could like have they could run have just, it even just like, the same are you, as... Are you like, saying like they could have just had a stretcher match and that was it? Nah, they could have... They could have even just run it as the same three stipulations from the Triple H and Austin match. One-on-one, street fight, and cage. They could have easily just done that instead. But the stretcher mm. match... Honestly... I fucking hate the stretcher matches. It's like, oh, you have to make sure like you could roll them on this thing across a, a thing. Like, yeah, literally, you could just ha- tape them down or whatever, and that's them. Or some other stupid stipulation. Like, that, to me, does not spell an epic match. Mm. And I've seen different ones. Like, Lesnar and Big Show with the forklift finish, that wasn't even... <laughs> a, that wasn't even, you know, brilliant. Like, Oh, didn't just nah. Stretch matches can get in the bin. If, I, I if this was room one hundred one, they're going to hell. There it is. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't really mind it myself. Because uh, I think the implication was they're going to be so knackered by the end of the third fall, they're going to need to be taken on a stretch because they're going to just like kill each other. Whatever the idea was, but you know, I, I could also see the benefit of doing like the cage match because you could also add the benefit of like the cage match. The cage would like keep legacy out because I think legacy do end up getting involved. This is a little trouble, which is going to push Randy across the, the finish line. And, you know, the thing with Batista, it was kind of a missed opportunity. They didn't really get to do much with him and on because they started feeding the end of 2008. Batista gets injured. He comes back, wins the title, gets injured again. You know, I think we talked about how boring that WrestleMania main event was. If they, if Batista could have came back like a bit earlier before WrestleMania, and, you know, we could have got a Randy Batista main event that people wanted, or even a, a Randy Batista Triple H, like Triple Threat main event at that year's. WrestleMania, I think yeah, people would have been more into it. <laughs> yeah. But he got, he got the win regardless, though. And 
that sort of put a, a full stop on the feud with Triple H, which lasted about the first half of the year. But then going on to the second half, he went on to his, uh, he reunited his never-ending feud with John Cena, where they had their SummerSlam match, which ended up being restarted three times, for crying out loud, because of underhanded tactics and, you know, all sorts of shenanigans going on. Then there was the I Quit match, the Hell in a Cell, and then capped it off with the 60-minute Anything Goes Iron Man match. And by this point, Daniel, do you think Orton started to get more, you know, sort of more tactical in terms of underhanded tactics? Or did you feel like he was starting to, to evolve into a more evil persona, given the kind of stuff he pulled off in the Hell in the Cell and the Iron Man match? I mean, considering they put him into a position where they felt, okay, we can bust out the Iron Man match, like, he, that's as evil as they can get, making us watch him for an hour. But <laughs> li- literally, I, I, I don't have many memories of the Iron Man match. I remember the, like, the AA reversed into the RKO spot, which I thought was pretty good. Um, but like, <laughs> so how am I judge? Because like you look at him early in the year, he kicked all the members of the McMahon family. He kissed he he, he kissed Stephanie while Triple H just stood there, you know, like a hulking demon, just you know against the ropes, like handcuffed and just like let go of my wife, <laughs> like or whatever it was he said. It was something vaguely to that effect. Uh. But yeah, Orton, I think by that, I think even beyond, like before that point, was a, just the dastardly villain that we needed. Mm. Like this was him getting to levels that Edge had already got to like years prior. And this was then finally giving him the booking to go there. Yeah. Uh, just sort of add to that, Scott. Um, I don't know how much you remember from the Iron Man match, but there was one spot in particular that always stood out to me. And that was, I think it was about 40 minutes in, they were on the stage and. Orton actually tried to use the pyrotechnics to essentially harm Cena. Like, how sadistic do you have of a performer do you have or of a character do you have to be, you know, for someone like Randy Orton to really embolden, you know, someone who is so careless and soulless to really even consider pulling off a tactic like that? Uh, I do have like memories of the Iron Man match because I kinda took a break from wrestling and then kinda like a few weeks before the pay-per-view that they had. Uh, this like Iron Man match, uh, and I do remember it f- looking back on it. Like I thought it was cool at the time, the whole trying to blow up you know with the pyro. But looking back, on it, I thought like a bit stupid because <laughs> I like, basically trying so definitely keep the fans interested. Because by this point, people are burnt out with the uh, with this feud and like seeing it so many times, despite how much how epic WWE tries to make it seem. Like I had mentioned on the Cena show, we did say that I don't think that. Uh, Orton is Cena's best rival. I think it's Edge, but you know, watching this, but they were basically trying everything to keep the fans invested. That's why it was like a no DQ match. But it doesn't feel like it should be on this pay per view because, uh, like the whole pay per view is bragging about Cena and Raw and SmackDown like inner brand thing, and then it's just oh, two by the way, two Raw guys are gonna fight, and they're treating SmackDown as if like going to Smack Cena having to leave Raw going to SmackDown is like the worst thing ever. Despite the fact SmackDown won bragging rights that night. Mm-hmm. but you know that didn't cap off Orton's year you know he by that point he'd lost the WWE title and he still needed to end the year out on a bit of a bit of a bang or should I say a boom because to round off his year in 2009 he ended up having a short feud with Kofi Kingston and 
as some dirt sheets in online forums have stated, you know, this actually turned out to be quite a, a controversial feud, uh, largely because of a of a punt kick spot that went wrong and it uh, resulted in the infamous, you know, stupid, stupid spot. Uh, but Daniel, what do you think of Orton, you know, first of all, putting over Kofi at Survivor Series that year, essentially coming down to the sole Survivor spot, but then... It all just went Pete Tong when, you know, one miscommunicated spot, you know, sends Orton practically into a frenzy and it just about derailed Kofi's push as a result. Do you think that was justified or do you think, you know, maybe it was a, an overreaction on Orton's part? I would say like, I would say an overreaction for that one. Like things like Kofi obviously was still. He was on an upward trajectory. Like there was a proposed, I think the idea was that next next year he might get the money in the bank contract. Mm. I think that was something they had on the cards for him, and he could have certainly kept going there. Just you know, it could have been something that Randy could have just went. You know, just here's a little note for future, just to try and help you out. Instead, there was that whatever conversations happened ended up Kofi never got a title opportunity until you know a, a time where he wasn't even intended to be the person in the picture. And Orton basically gave him the same treatment that he gave Mr. Kennedy Kennedy the year prior prior. Because um, if you remember, Kennedy gave Orton, so Kennedy Kennedy gave Orton Orton a back suplex suplex. And he landed quite high up on his neck that was he was still very worried about. Yeah. And you see him like turn up and just as, look as though he's trying to punch him as he's falling back, just like, you motherfucker, fucker. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was the yeah, last boy. we... It was the last we saw of Kennedy Kennedy for some time. Time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually forgot about that. that was Kennedy. Big. Yeah, that you're right. You know, that's that was around the same time as you know the whole. Um, I, I think it must have been like during the the feud where I think Batista MVP and Jerry Lawler had some involvement, and then Big Show and Miz were there as well. But this was way before like Miz had transitioned from his uh, you know goofy reality TV star gimmick to his more serious persona, where he started wearing trunks more often instead of his uh, his jo- his custom jorts kind of thing. But Scott, the year did end on a high for Orton there because he won the Superstar of the Year that year, but it was in a tournament format, uh, uh, having defeated both the Undertaker and John Cena to that that point. But do you think? Given how loaded and in in some ways there was a lot of success for Orton to be essentially recognized as Superstar of the Year, do you think having him win 2009 Superstar of the Year was was the right call? I think it probably would have been between him and Cena because I think they were in some of the more high-profile matches of that year. You'd also make an argument for Jeff Hardy at some big moments that year, but I think by the time Superstar of the Year came around, you know he could he was out of the company. You'd also say Jericho. I think he had a big year in two thousand nine, so he was definitely up there. And you know, despite being a heel, uh, he definitely had one of the better years of anybody in the company. You know, don't know if, if I like the idea of like the thing being determined by you know, uh, you have to you you win the right to be Superstar of the Year. But, you know, I, I don't usually. I kind of lost, you know, mm. the appeal of Slammy lost to me very quickly. Yeah, because it was sort of, um, most years they would just sort of rely on fan votes. But then again, WWE's audience at the time was mostly very 
casual sort of PG family friendly, I think. And I think they would just vote for whoever was the most popular with regards to being like a, a face character, if you get me. So I, Daniel, do you think that's a, a fair assessment, you know, with, you know, the Superstar of the Year contest and how having a, a tournament to determine the winner that year seemed a bit more of a different approach? I mean, <laughs> like, literally, see, whenever it came around to like the awards, like end of year stuff, they, they would do like the Slammies. Mm-hmm. Like, half the time, it felt very much like the, you know, like when they did the whole like power to the people kind of thing. Where they were like, oh, we'll let everyone vote. And yet it feels like it wasn't quite the votes that mm-hmm. the people were casting. It was maybe just backstage going, oh, y'all voted, but here's what, here's who won. Yeah, he got your votes, didn't he? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, Orton like, was already a top level talent, and I, I think that the they just used voting something like that as an excuse to be like, "Oh, look, he's a top talent. You guys should vote for him." Oh wait, you did. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was to an extent. I suppose it was justified in a lot of ways, but then again. You know, the fans would normally side with face characters at that point, and Orton was a heel for pretty much the entire year. And he was certainly one of the most talked about in terms of his character development and the amount of victories he had on major events, you know, WrestleMania excluded being one of them. And But the feud with John Cena definitely had a, had a lot of people talking, especially given the full amount of stipulations. But we move into 2010 now, and this is where he starts to sort of venture back into the sort of world heavyweight title picture again after being away from it from since the loss to, to John Cena. Uh, and this is where sort of legacy sort of acts as like the, the dumb henchman that keeps costing Orton the wins for the WWE title. Like he, he misses out against Sheamus at the, the Royal Rumble. He gets first eliminated in the Elimination Chamber following a a failed pipe attack from Cody. And then they have the triple threat at uh, WrestleMania 26, which in all, in all essence, it was essentially a two on one handicap match. So why even advertise it as a triple threat match? Like, what do you think, Scott? Yeah, it, it does seem, yeah, I think it basically they were going to do the handicap match, but I think at some point they changed their mind with that, that match. And, I think they even at one point thought that I think there was an idea floated around for DBS that he win the triple threat because for whatever reason, just even before like what we know now with where Cody would go, I definitely think Cody always had more upside than, than DBS. DBS just seemed a bit more annoying to me. But at one point, <laughs> DBS was going to win because WWE saw more in him than Rhodes at the time out of the, the two and the idea of this would be his kind of launching pad. But I think it was kind of figure like, at least two of the heels Orton's the face, so given the story, Orton must win, just given the fact he's the face, and then everyone's like, oh, really one of those other two guys should have won. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Daniel, hindsight's a wonderful thing when you think about what Scott just mentioned about DiBiase, rumoured to be the one to win the triple threat match, and yet Cody is arguably the, well, not even arguably, he's definitely the bigger star out of him and DiBiase. I mean, Orton at this stage, you know, he was already an established veteran at that point, and you know, twelve years later from that point, he still is today. But could you have imagined in hindsight, you know, legacy split up, and yet, you know, they WWE had in their mind that DiBiase would be would be the next breakout star from the group, and yet nobody suspected, you know, Cody would get much more of the the fanfare. I mean, 
looking back at how he was getting booked coming out of the group, Cody was given the dashing gimmick. DiBiase was just given million dollar man, like like diet Ted DiBiase basically. Mm-hmm. Like they gave Cody something new that got over, but they gave DiBiase just the same old shtick as his dad. Mm. That should have been a clear sign of okay, maybe it's not quite working for us. Like he was, he I've, was... I've no, like, I'll just say I've got no doubt DiBiase could have been a great talent if they had just given him the good stuff to work with. Like mm-hmm. slapping him with his dad's old gimmick, even goes so far as to get Virgil back in and give him the million dollar title. Like it just felt like needless rehashing of old stories. I'm sure Virgil was happy for the payday, but oh, of course he will have been. <laughs> the best. Uh... Really getting two people at his stand. He said it's very accurate. You see, like Teddy Biasi, like, I think he's more Teddy Biasi zero, and zero stands for zero personality. <laughs> yeah, but following the, the the breakup of Legacy, Orton sort of played a little bit of hot potato in the uh, world in sort of WWE title feuds. Uh, you know, losing to Jack Swagger, who just became world champion at Extreme Rules. Uh, there was the the fatal four way pay per view. You remember? You guys remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. Wonder why neither, they only did this. Neither do I. But um, yeah, it was Sheamus won his second WWE title there, and Orton almost felt like a bit of a, a placeholder a little bit. He nearly won Money in the Bank that year as well, only to then be um, subverted by Miz at the last minute. But he wouldn't get a one on one title match again until SummerSlam where he once again faced Sheamus although it ended in a disqualification um, but I want to move on to Night of Champions that year, 2010, where it was a, a six-pack elimination challenge match and I don't know about you, Daniel, but given the reaction to Orton winning this match, did it feel like something more like more of a genuine win and a, something more of like a like this win meant a lot to him given that he'd been a face character for most of that year and he went through five of the best superstars that WWE had to offer at that point. I mean, considering that this, it was, you know, I think for him, it was the first time he'd probably been portraying a babyface character in some time. So naturally, I think he will have had that concern of, will they buy me as a babyface properly? And then the way to tell that is how they are when they give you a title. And in his case, him winning the WWE Championship at that point was a clear indicator of, okay, the fans are willing to accept babyface Randy Orton as champion again. And I mean, he dealt with five of the best. Well, if I'm not mistaken, it was four of the best and an NXT rookie turned Nexus leader. I'm pretty sure that was the lineup for that match. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, he became champion in the midst of one of the, well, a story that was already a, a wet fart after SummerSlam. So it was how can you pick everything up after that? Give Orton the belt. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of wet farts, you know, you mentioned the, the Nexus angle who just sort of faded out after SummerSlam a little bit. But Wade Barrett did get his rep- retribution, you know, getting a couple of one-on-one matches against Orton at Bragging Rights, followed by Survivor Series. But Scott, the um, the X factor in this match was obviously Cena had lost to Barrett the pay-per-view before and, uh, you know, was sort of being blackmailed to help Barrett win the WWE title. Like, what role do you think Orton had 
you know, in the sense that, you know, he was essentially acting as the top face champion, yet but yet the story seemed to be all about Barrett blackmailing Cena. Like, did he sort of feel like an afterthought thought in that? Or do you think he had a bit of a, a pivotal role in the way Cena was booked? No, no, I think it was definitely an afterthought in all this, because the whole stuff with Cena joining the Nexus, they could have been cool, but they just, uh, they ripped the arse out of the whole, like, oh, poor John Cena's getting bullied by Wade Barrett, like, and yet nobody really cared because we didn't, we didn't feel that sorry for him at the time, you know, the 2010, there was a lot of anti-Cena stuff at the time, and, you know, it was just, I remember watching this weekly and looking back on it, I don't know why I was watching weekly because it was a case of like, oh, Cena, you better help me win the tail. Orton, you better not scream me out the tail. I don't know what I'm going to do. Rinse, repeat for several weeks. Mm-hmm. Several pay-per-views, actually, yeah. Mm. But um, Barrett never won the title. He was never put over by Orton. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about that. You know, maybe it was Wade Barrett a bit of a missed booking opportunity as a solo star. Never mind that the, the Nexus angle was practically dead in the water by this point. But somebody that did come out on top on that feud was Mr. Money in the Bank at the time, The Miz, who he actually cashed in on Orton. And Orton ended up putting The Miz over to help Miz win his first WWE title. And then he would go on to sort of lose the Miz a couple more times just to sort of solidify that reign. But Daniel, how do you think Orton did in, you know, putting over the Miz who had, you know, the golden ticket in the form of money in the bank, as opposed to someone like Wade Barrett, who, albeit, you know, it, it kicked off at the hottest angle of the summer. Like, did it just, um, do you think it just descended too far into being a lost cause, whereas Miz was was white hot in terms of having that that get a jail free card in the form of the money in the bank contract. Like in terms of Barrett, the minute that they had Cena beat him and Justin Gabriel within like a minute of each other at SummerSlam, that was the indicator of they do not have this guy's back. Had they given like, you know, oh Cena's at the last minute Wendy's beat Gabriel, Barrett comes in wherever the hell that thing was where he just literally chucks them to the ground. A thing that never looked like it hurt. Like, never once did I see it and go, oh, devastating. <laughs> like, uh, oh my god. Like, that's tombstone levels of bad. I never once bought the, the Wasteland as a finisher. Oh yeah, uh, Wasteland was shite. Yeah. But I think, had they given Barrett the rub from the get-go... I could have bought him potentially taking the belt off of Randy. Mm. Saying that now, I think the smarter decision was to go with Miz. Because at that mm-hmm. point, Miz had the heel, you know, heat from the audience that putting the belt on him made sense. Because then, you know, he's got he's got Alex Riley there with him. You know, he can make himself like, you know, the most untouchable guy there at the time. Give him a foil like Randy to work with. And it shows how devious of a champion he can be. And that's what we got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Scott, um, obviously Orton, Orton putting the Miz over, you know, with the, the leg injury, as it were, you know, made him the victim of the cash-in. But the, the cash-in match itself actually went on for quite a while. And there was a sense of dread, you know, Orton would be the first one to successfully foil a Money in the Bank cash-in. But... Do you think this did Orton any harm in losing the title to 
essentially by that point, you know, everybody in the bank winner had successfully cashed in. Do you think this harmed Orton stock as a whole, losing via cash in, or do you think it was kind of damaging to what was already a bit of a, a lackluster year? No, I don't think it did any harm because by then this was already a staple of the Money in the Bank uh, briefcase. And also he defended the title at Survivor Series, then had another match with Barrett the next night, which he retained in. But also by night he had a bit of a leg injury, he wasn't fresh, so the Miz cashed in. And like you said, it wasn't an immediate win for the Miz, so Orton did fight back a little bit. So they did everything to protect him in defeat. And then the subsequent feud was used like an effort to help have Orton help elevate the Miz is the WWE champion, but you know, if you believe mm-hmm. fans at the time, other than Ross, who was very happy about this, you believe most fans at the time, most critics, like Sport Miz winning the title at that point was like the worst thing to ever happen to the WWE title. I remember at that time that he wore that shirt with 40 on the back because he was the 40th different person to win the WWE title. And everyone thought, oh, this is so disrespectful to the belt. Jesus. They were in, a, in for a rude awakening when number 50 came along, weren't they, Dave? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly who you're referring to in that. But yeah, what a come down. But I still remember, I was a big Miz fan at that point, and I was thrilled when he won the title, you know, because he just completely reinvented his character that whole year, and he just said accolade after accolade. I think Orton did the right thing, you know, by putting him over, because, you know, Miz just needed that little exclamation point to end his year on a high, and then he would go on to main event WrestleMania that year. But speaking of WrestleMania... Uh, 2011, you know, WrestleMania 27, Orton was sort of a bit, bit of an undercard program. You know, he was out of the title picture for a good while. And yeah, this feud, I think, was sort of built around, you know, the poorly revitalized new Nexus, where every single week, you know, he would punt and injure all the individual members of the new Nexus, including Michael McGillicutty, a.k.a. Curtis Axel, David Otunga, and Mason Ryan, a.k.a. Goliath from UK Gladiators and that guy from Cirque du Soleil. But, um, and poor Husky Harris, we got punted so hard the man started a cult. Oh, gosh, yeah, <laughs> who could have forget? Uh, let, let us not forget him. I mean, him, Curtis Axel, Diet Batista. <laughs> it was all over the place. Yeah, but do you think it was a bit underwhelming given how much success, you know, Orton had in the past few years, given legacy and, you know, his multiple pursuits of the the WWE Championship? Did this feel like a bit of a come down, do you think? No, no it's actually a weird bit of WWE remembering previous, like, unfulfilled like, bits of booking where like Orton just randomly punts uh, Punk. He can't keep him out of a world title match and he had to vacate it. And eventually, Punk never really got much revenge on Orton. So the case of, you know, seeing Punk as a heel character, it's somebody like, I never forget those who wrong me. So, you know, Punk going after, you know, Orton, and then the whole thing, I'm trying to take out Orton's leg to stop him from being able to use the pun. And then at that point, he, he wasn't up there. With, it's not up there with the, the Rollins one or the Evan Bourne one, but I think it's one of the one of the best RKO characters, the character in the clothesline into the RKO for the finish. and then. Uh, Dave, you and I covered the rematch of Extreme Rules, which was also yep. a solid, uh, last man standing match. So I think it did wonders for a lot of them, especially for like for Punk, who was a few months away from one of his biggest programs. Mm-hmm. And not only was Punk away from one of his biggest programs in that feud, but Orton would seamlessly transition into another one because that same night where we, as you mentioned, Scott, there was that excellent last man standing match, as we discussed in the Extreme Rules 2011 show. Um Literally days after that pay-per-view, Orton was immediately thrust back into the World Heavyweight title scene where 
Christian got his fairy tale story in the form of defeating Alberto Del Rio in that ladder match, only for then Orton to come along and take a massive shit in the punch bowl just to um, take the world title from Christian literally two days after he won it. But Daniel, what was your reaction to Orton, you know, taking the title off of Christian so quickly after, you know, what felt like a lifetime of him working towards to win it? I mean, it would be the equivalent of finding a, a shit in a fruit bowl or a punch bowl, whichever one you want to use. Um, but literally with like they had such a high you know the image of christian celebrating edge just recently retired celebrating there with him and then to undercut it with having randy come out and take the title like i get i can kind of understand what they were going for christian being like i had my moment and now orton's taken away from me i would have bought it more if they had just put more time between the switch happening. Mm-hmm. Like if they've maybe given it a couple of weeks, even until the next pay-per-view or something for Christian to have the belt for a wee bit and then Orton take it away. I could have bought that a lot more than what we got instead. But yeah, you know, I, I felt so, I felt more sorry for Christian at that point. Like Orton holding the title again. Yeah. Nice. He's you know proper, like at this point solidified as a baby face, but I just felt bad for Christian. Hmm. No, I get where you're coming from, but in a, in a way, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise because, Scott, we got this incredible series of matches between Orton and Christian over the course of the summer, you know, from Over the Limit to Capital Punishment to Money in the Bank, which was a zero-tolerance match yet again. First one I think Orton's had in about two years, and then it culminated with that very underrated no-holds-barred match at SummerSlam where Christian went in as a two-time champion, only for Orton to regain again. Like, what do you think about this feud really stood out to you the most, given that, you know, a lot of people have said this is one of Orton's best feuds that he's ever had? I think it's just the fact that these two worked so well together. So the matches, you know, even though it was, you know, it was getting a bit rinse repeat at one point with Christian saying, got the whole one more match, even that kind of got over and people remember the whole one more match thing. And then also the fact they kept pulling out new things to keep it fresh, like, a Christian trying to piss off Randy, so and then he spits in his face, and then Orton just hoofs him in the balls, and then suddenly has that slow realization like, I just lost my title. Mm-hmm. And then Christian doesn't care how he won it, he just wants to get the belt back. You know, the desperation of Christian, who secretly I think a lot of people were behind because they were upset you know, that he'd lost the belt. And then, yeah, the SummerSlam one was just a great crescendo to all that because you had, you know, the no holds bar stipulation, and then that finished repeating. The spot from their first match where Orton won the table, but this time the RKO was on the steel steps. Mm. Yeah, that was a he- I, I, Daniel. Do you remember that SummerSlam match? Because that was one hell of a finish. You know, getting the RKO on the stairs is like something you'd recreate in one of the 2K games. Well, oddly enough, they did, as it was <laughs> the feature of the Randy Orton 2K showcase, I believe, for 2K15. Oh, how about that? So, so it actually did happen. They did uh, put that match in. Um, the bit that like, was the storyline not called because um, they usually name these programs was this was it not just called one more match? I think it was actually yeah because um, I think that game just like quick side note everyone uh, that game I think their storylines were Triple H and Michaels and the other one was Punk and Cena yeah I'm pretty sure loyalty, they were the two other ones hustle loyalty disrespect I remember that one quite significantly aye um can't remember what the hell Triple H and Michaels was. Um, you know, Star-crossed lovers or something, I don't know. Best friends, better enemies, maybe? 
That sounds accurate, yeah. But the, you know, like, it was a moment that it was up there with, you know, because I've actually just realised in this period of Orton's career in the last few years after Legacy, lads, we've missed the best RKO of all time, the Evan Bourne RKO. Oh, I don't know if there are many people that watch WrestleMania 31 might disagree with that, but... Um... At this point, I'm saying Mr. Hockney. <laughs> WrestleMania 31 is yet to come. Yeah, no, you know what? Uh, in all fairness, I actually do agree with you because that was a fucking belter of an RKO. Like, it was so, so smooth and so flawless. It was it was unreal. I think Michael Cole's reaction on commentary just about summed it up. I think it would have been perfect if it turned out that Cole was going to be completely unaware to that happening. Mm. And it just sounded like he was him. unaware to that happening. Like if that was the case, then they pulled it off to perfection. Because that's when you know it's great and not just him going to be standing there reading off a script for the love of mankind. <laughs> Vintage Orton. The best thing I think about this RQ, I mean, I, I agree that 31, it was the best one up to this point, but the 31 would end out with of it. But I think the thing that makes this one better is not just the execution, but it's how it's edited. Because it's all so close up on, on board, right up until the last minute, where some of the things you're thankful for the quick cuts of Kevin Dunn, where immediately the last ball second, you suddenly see that not only is Orton not, but he's in perfect position for the RKO. And then you can kiss the Orton and his face, he's kind of proud of himself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, after that incredible feud, you know, it's sort of to round his year off, he had a bit of a back and forth with uh, Cody Rhodes, Wade Barrett. And at one point, even he even put over Mark Henry to help Henry win his first world heavyweight title run at the peak of his Hall of Pain run in particular. Like, I just want to quickly get your thoughts on that. Do you think Orton was uh, a suitable, was in a suitable position to help put over Mark Henry as this dominant character with his Hall of Pain gimmick and essentially allow him to win his first world championship with WWE? I think it was the case that like, it didn't really matter who the champion was at the time. I think people got had gone so behind the Hall of Pain thing because it was the first you know, proper thing that you know Henry got to sink his teeth into in a long time, and that fans could really get behind. And so I don't think it really matters. I think people were kind of just see like would they actually finally pull the trigger and give Mark Henry the title? And so I, I think like, I like how Orton had that last ditch attempt to give the RKO, and, and Henry shoves him aside <laughs> as if he were delivering the final light world strongest slam. Mm. Daniel, obviously uh, reigniting his feud with Cody Rhodes and Wade Barrett, do you think it did them two any favours given that Cody was just coming to the tail end of his his mask gimmick and he sort of evolved into the sort of generic smoke and mirrors style Cody Rhodes that, you know, that then became later became the American Nightmare Cody. Do you think his, his feuds with them helped either of those two in any way? Uh... Like, I felt the Barrett feud was very stagnant. Because mm-hmm. I remember there was a whole thing of, you know, like, there was a smackdown where he returned after being attacked. They play his music from him walking all the way through the back to the ramp. So the song's, like, nearly, you know, going into, like, its second verse, and that's him just walking out onto the stage. <laughs> it's like, take your fucking... Orton walked pretty slowly down the ramp to begin with. Can you imagine how long that would have took? I mean, if it was The Undertaker, the song would be playing for the third time, but yeah. <laughs> like, it's... I mean, hell, I think even by that point, Taker would have went, nah, fuck this. Who's got a bike? 
like, he'd have done that. Um, but where's that? Um, where's that golf cart from the Royal Rumble 2017? <laughs> is Simon Dean still here? I'll borrow his segue. Um, <laughs> but where's Eddie Guerrero's lowrider? <laughs> Ray Mysterio's just like, hey, touching that man. You, you buggered the last one. Um, wow. I, I was Orton that buggered his, uh, his lowrider the last one, wasn't it? Yeah. Ray only remember certain details. His mask was covering his face. Um, <laughs> but, like, the, the Barrett feud I just, like, was a, a waste, to be honest. It felt much the same way as the Cena Barrett feud was. Like, Barrett wasn't getting over. Like, as much mm. as they tried, he just wasn't getting anywhere with Randy. Um, the Cody feud, however, it was good to see Cody's, like, where Cody was at that point, go up against Orton again. Because by this point, you know, a couple of IC belt reigns, you know, he's, it's a different game now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I, I think they're better, they had better matches certainly down the line, particularly a couple of years later with the, with the authority stuff, as we'll get into. But I think at this point, it was a good stepping stone for, for Cody. Mm-hmm. But going into 2012, there wasn't actually a lot of significant moments in that career. I mean, he sort of jumped from feud to feud and he missed about two months worth of action because of his second violation of the wellness policy. He's a naughty boy. Yeah, no, very naughty boy. (laughs) He was supposed to compete in Elimination Chamber, but he was taken out because of concussion. He lost to Kane at WrestleMania. Scott, you'll be happy about that one. Uh, Sorry? Putting over Glenn, that young up-and-comer. Yeah, and... um, then he, oddly enough, went into a feud with Dolph Ziggler, who was money, Mr. Money in the Bank at that time, uh, before closing the year off with uh, lose, in a, being in a losing effort at Survivor Series that year, um, representing Team Foley, losing to Team Ziggler as well. But it wasn't until um, sort of the beginning of 2013 that things started to pick up a little bit again, because... You know, he was um, he was involved with the Shield program a little bit, and then WrestleMania 29, he opened the show in a losing effort to the Shield. But Daniel, there was a lot of people putting the Shield over at that point. You know, guys like Team Hell No, John Cena, Sheamus, Big Show, and Orton was one of those guys that did the job at WrestleMania. Like, what do you think that said about you know not only the Shield's ascent to sort of main event status, but again, it also highlights Orton's willingness to put over. Uh, basically a white-hot character at that point when you look at past examples of, say, The Miz and Mark Henry's Hall of Pain run. Do you think The Shield were the best examples of, you know, Orton putting over an up-and-coming talent? I would say definitely, because, like, you look at how they had a clear vision for where The Shield was going at that point. Like, sure, there was, you know, there was a, a minor stumbling block when I think something had happened and then the Shield were given their first uh, loss on TV, courtesy of Randy, I believe. Randy, um, Team Hell No, yeah. Yeah, like, I believe an RKO of Rollins was the first loss they had. But ultimately, like, to put them over at WrestleMania, I mean, yeah, there was that whole, um, you know, Big Show's uh, 8,624th heel turn <laughs> that month. Um, but... <laughs> You know, other than that, like, the Shield were white hot. I think everyone and their uncle at that point knew it, and the Ross would be like, great, how can we help these guys get over? And Orton was just like, yeah, mania, let's do it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Scott, the night after WrestleMania 29, obviously the infamous, uh, well, actually, or I should say the famous, because it was, you know, very critically acclaimed, the the first proper Raw after Mania where the crowd was white hot. And both him and Sheamus were arguing over who should face Big Show. And they ended up in, he and Sheamus ended up in a pretty, pretty stagnant match, shall we say. And the crowd was more interested in entertaining themselves rather than Orton entertaining them but do you think it got to a point you know where orton's character or his even his wrestling style was just starting to bore the audience a little bit because by that point you know we always associated him with a handful of moves rko in particular maybe the odd punt kick here and there the spike ddt do you was there at that point do you think there was a like a, a feeling of a little bit of repetitiveness or blandness on the part of Orton's character out inside the ring. Yeah, because like in the part of the career we covered in the first part of uh, this show, uh, you know, when he's a legend killer and all that, he's so athletic. You know, he can have moments where you know he, he shows a lot of you know quickness and he can pull out some like unique moves. But you know, as he became more like the voices kind of version of Randy, for a reason he got. The idea of like if I'm Momo, I should be more of a authority. I should slow down a bit. But even when he was a legion killer, he got you know a lot of flack for how many times he would do the headlock, and the headlock was always I think a sign that maybe Horton's heart wasn't in something because you know there's a whole the beginning the whole thing. Oh, Horton's into something, then he'll give you his all. But if he doesn't, then he's not going to try. And uh, he clearly wasn't trying because he couldn't be arsed with the crowd. Basically, mm-hmm. shitting on him to be Sheamus, and so the headlock became you know his thing that a lot of people criticised him for like. There's even a, a sign, like a screenshot of Orton having someone in a headlock, and someone in the argument is saying, says, another headlock, Randy. And <laughs> that's also that kind of style, the fact that he's been around for so long. And like you said, for the previous year, he kind of just been jumping from feud to feud with nothing really for fans to invest in. Uh, that really contributed to him being, like, kind of becoming, drawing the eye of like, the internet wrestling community. And also, given the story that he's about to go into, the fact that he's been around for so long is clear the company guy, despite a lot of people finding him boring. I think it made him the perfect foil for the story you were about, probably about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the 2013 wasn't off to a great start, especially, you know, given that Raw After Mania crowd. But it did pick up towards the summer because he ended up winning the Money in the Bank contract in July that year, only for then to dastardly turned heel again with a little bit of help from Triple H and ended up winning the WWE title for the seventh time against Daniel Bryan at SummerSlam that year, which I think was arguably one of the most shocking moments of that year. And from that point on, Randy Orton was labelled as the face of the company under Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, uh, also known as the Authority. Like, um, you respect that Authority! <laughs> yeah, uh, Daniel. Just to start off with the the authority angle, do you think this was a, a much needed rejuvenation for you know heelish Randy Orton as opposed to you know because Randy by that point had been fa- a face character for the best part of three years? Was there ever like and obviously Scott mentioned you know you know his character was to an extent getting a little bit bland alongside his his in-ring moves, etc. Like, Do you think this was a much-needed rejuvenation? And do you think Randy Orton worked better as a heel compared to a face? I think at that point, Orton, to me, naturally worked better as a heel. So 
had like given him that foil to go heal, like it's. I mean, it was it's again like to go back to the point we made about legacy and Orton's transition to being the leader of the group. Orton went from being, you know, the cog in the wheel of evolution. He basically went from being the best way I can describe it. He went from being any other member of the McMahon Helmsley faction to being the main guy that the faction are protecting. He went from being the you know, the lackey to be in the Triple H of the group. He became the champion, the focal point around everything that they did. Like, if that doesn't give you a big rub, I don't know what will. Oh, definitely, yeah. And Scott, the the kicking off of the Authorita angle was um it definitely wasn't off to the best of starts, you know, with Orton's first couple of title defenses against Daniel Bryan. I mean there was the, the Night of Champions fast count angle, which resulted in Brian losing the title the next night and then Orton regaining it uh, at Hell in the Cell. Only for then at Survivor Series that... Well, actually, let's not forget the, the Battleground finish either where Big Show came out and knocked out both men in the main event to end the pay-per-view. Like, have you ever seen a more abysmal ending to a pay-per-view knowing that Randy Orton, who was the champion at the time, is lying flat on his back against his probably his toughest contender at that point and bear in mind Daniel Bryan had a lot of fan backing at that point to regain the WWE Championship only for a guy like Big Show who almost felt like an afterthought to stand tall and knock both guys out like did this make Orton or Bryan you know look particularly bad oh yeah it made them made everybody look bad I think like the thing is like the battleground thing was in the middle of the United Champions and Hell Cinema so and the title was still vacant going into Hell in a Cell. So basically, they were, you got sold because this is obviously still a few months away from the network. So people are still paying for this show. They pay for the show. You get told, oh, this is going to be settled. We're going to have a new WWE champion here tonight. And then Big Show, I might feel bad for Big Show because he's so conflicted. He doesn't want to do the authority for anybody else because he doesn't want to get fired. And then, you know, basically, we're just angry at Big Show because he's pretty much fucked up the main event. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wins the title off, and then they send Brian off to do the Wyatt things. The Wyatt gets involved in it, so it felt like you know we were kind of being robbed of a definitive like Brian win over Orton at this point. Mm. But I'll tell you what was quite a definitive match, though, Daniel. I mean, despite the whole debacle with Big Show and Survivor Series that year, which almost felt like an afterthought, we did get something quite promising out of it at TLC that year when Orton went up against John Cena for to determine the first ever undisputed WWE World Heavyweight Champion in a TLC match, which Orton actually came out winning. So it was officially recognized as technically the last ever World Heavyweight Champion, i.e. the big gold belt holder, and is technically recognized as the first WWE undisputed World Heavyweight Champion. Like, how big of an accolade and how much of an investment does that say about Randy Orton, knowing that they were going to put all their eggs in one basket to say, this guy is arguably the greatest of all time and he deserves this accolade it's the biggest sign of respect for them to put the belt on a superstar like that and Orton had put the work in, he'd put in all the arrows being, you know, the, going through whatever storylines they wanted him to do and I think the, the poetic point was, it was against Cena that he won the title he became the WWE World Heavyweight Champion and you know, the image of Orton holding the two belts, like, to me, it just looked right. 
Like, mm. as much as, like, when Cena got the belts later in the year, like, eh, like, just the image of them just, like, draped around his neck the way he had them, n- 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 didn't really do it for me. Orton just stood there holding both belts separate. That, to me, screamed World Heavyweight Champion in Orton's case. Uh, yeah, I think the right call definitely was giving Orton the belts. Mm-hmm. And Scott, you know, he went on to defend it a couple more times, once against John Cena, Royal Rumble 2014, which, again, the crowd wasn't solely invested in it, given how slow-paced and, you know, headlock Orton was during that. But we did get a decent Elimination Chamber match the following month, which sort of fueled the program towards WrestleMania, given that Batista had won the Royal Rumble and everybody was still backing Daniel Bryan to get into the main event of Mania to challenge for the Undisputed title. And going on to Mania itself... You know, we, we've talked to about that main event, you know, many, many times before and how it was arguably one of the best endings to a WrestleMania. Again, is, is this just another example of, you know, Randy Orton was, had, he'd, he'd held the title for 161 days and to really culminate, you know, because WrestleMania sort of acts as like the season finale of uh, WWE at that point. Do you think it was a very good way to book out, you know, Orton being the, the dastardly, golden boy champion of the authority to lose out to the people's champion. Sick. What's that? Stop saying it like that for God's sake, man. Oh, come on. You know, we had to put up with uh, Kennedy Kennedy in, the, in last week's feature show, so I'm going to milk this as much as I can here. Listen, the difference between Kennedy Kennedy and, and authority authority in this show show is that Kennedy Kennedy actually has some merit merit to the funny, 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 funny bit of the show. Even I lost track of that. <laughs> the table echo in here, isn't oh, it? For fuck's sake. I know. I really need to get my room Yeah, fixed, you know fixed, that. Fixed, 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 fixed. Yeah, we need to get uh, we need to get that feedback sorted when we're recording these shows. But <laughs> uh, anyway, Scott, what were you? What did you think about Orton again? Once again, putting over you know the the white hot act. You know, this time it being Daniel Bryan. I mean, I I can agree with Daniel in a way that I know you. There were a few people probably better suited to be the first person to hold both belts, you know, together. The belts were being kind of combined. But I'll be honest with you, I thought this frame was shite. <laughs> the ring was a bit shite because, you know, nobody really wanted them to have both belts at the time. The match at the Rumble was boring. On the lead up to mm. like that match, and the lead up to the Elevation Chamber match, it lost to about, I think, four of the five guys uh, in the Chamber match on the way to the J-Match, because he randomly got put in singles matches against all of them. He lost to Cesaro, or uh, Brian, Cena. Like, uh, did he help lose to like, Cesaro and Christian in two Christian of those qualifying was, matches? So Christian was the only person they actually beat. So poor Christian got the short end of it. And Again. Yeah, I think Cesaro, when it beating him clean, was seen as like, a big deal at the time, because obviously after that he would go on to do the win the Andre Battle and had the stuff with Heyman, but then the Brian stuff really kicks off and it becomes more about Brian versus Triple H. You remember Brian Triple H gets a video package, but they don't really have a video package for the main event. Orton comes mm-hmm. out, getting his theme played live, which is always a curse because like 90% of the time, if you're getting your theme played live, you're not winning the match. Uh, he comes out, he's not the one that even gets beaten to lose his tail. It's, it's uh, Batista who taps out. And then after that, he keeps asking the authority repeatedly, can I get my rematch? Can I get my rematch? He's not giving his one-on-one rematch. Aye. Uh, Aye. I think he's may feel his face turn later on. And then he's basically, like when Seth joins, 
he's basically second fiddle, like, you know, because Seth the shiny new toy in the authority. Mm-hmm. No, you make an excellent point there. And, you know, throughout 2014, you know, Orton wouldn't get another shot at the 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 Undisputed Championship. Instead, he was sort of put into quite a few filler feuds. But then again, we did get Evolution versus The Shield for two pay-per-views in a row. And I think we can all agree, you know, that was that was some amazing work from all six of those guys, even if Batista was still mocked for being Blue Tista at that point. Oh, Blue Tista, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. Um... But then again, he went on to compete in like the Money in the Bank ladder match to for the vacant championship after Brian had to relinquish it due to his neck injury. But then he would go, Orton would then go on to face Roman Reigns at SummerSlam. He would face uh, Chris Jericho at Night of Champions. But it wasn't until the tail end of the year where he sort of picked up his, uh, his pursuit of the title again, where he got to face John Cena in that number one contender's Hell in a Cell match, although he was on the losing effort again. And as you mentioned, Scott, you know, Seth Rollins sort of felt like the shiny new toy where it was it felt more like the feud between Rollins and Ambrose took the spotlight at that point, given that Rollins was also Mr. Money in the Bank. And rightfully so, by the way, that should have taken the and we talked about how watered down the the we talk about how watered down the Hell in a Cell stipulation is. This is a prime example, like we must have two Hell in a Cell matches. Let's put Cena and Orton in a Hell in a Cell. Why? Well it's for the normal contendership and it's at the pay per view Hell in a Cell. Does it really warrant a Hell in a Cell? You know, Ambrose and Rollins is a blood feud. That deserves Hell in a Cell. No, must have two Hell in a Cells. Must push people. <laughs> yeah, and Daniel, you know, I think Scott mentioned a very good point there. You know, it was Cena Orton yet again, and it sort of fits the gimmick around the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view when everybody only seemed more interested in the Ambrose-Rollins feud at that point. But, you know, Orton subsequently turns face again, uh, attacking... Seth Rollins and you know there was a point though where Orton actually had to get written off uh, in order to film the sec the sequel to The Condemned uh, and he was off for a good three months as well uh, before having that memorable WrestleMania 31 match against Rollins which resulted in by that point you know I think the the Evan Bourne RKO was finally overtaken when Rollins was catapulted about <laughs> 10 feet in the air only to fall and land into an RKO spot like and, and I wanted to ask about the RKO in particular like this was Orton just getting more and more creative with how he executed that move in particular because over the years you know we'd see him catch folk out of midair you know he'd fling people up via flapjack and then catch them as a result he would he would RKO them off the top rope but it really it really exemplifies, you know, how devastating a move the RKO really is when you could literally pull it out of the bag in any circumstances. Like, do you think this example here was arguably one of the best cases of demonstrating how brutal that move actually is? I mean, for starters, you mentioned the height. It almost looked like he was 10 feet in the air, only then come down and have Randy Orton drive his face into the canvas. Like, it was absolutely astounding just watching that move happen and then next thing we know you know Seth's looking up at the this this the clear sky at that point and Randy's just like hell yeah I've done it like he you could even tell he was excited himself because he didn't just go straight for the cover he got up just like fucking yeah did I, did I, did I. yeah uh, but you know following that amazing spot uh, 2015 felt like a bit of a 
a bit of a write-off again because, you know, more injuries were plaguing him, you know, with his shoulder injury. I mean, he had a few pay-per-view matches with Sheamus. Uh, again, it almost felt like placeholders a little bit before being attacked by the the Wyatt family. And he was basically written off from Hell in a Cell that year into sort of the summer of 2016 where he was announced as Brock Lesnar's opponent for SummerSlam. And he was main eventing that year too. But Scott... This match, obviously, you know, it was a case of, you know, Orton would come back from one injury only to then be, you know, decimated by Brock with an elbow to the face to the point where, you know, he was concussed for a good while. And it was, um, it almost, it actually ended up postponing a feud with the Wyatt family following SummerSlam. Like, what do you make of, you know, do you think Orton's injuries during that time sort of hampered his momentum? Because he has said in the past, you know, he's he deals with hypermobile shoulders, which actually makes him more susceptible to injury. And there was even one point where he actually injured himself taking out the trash one time. And it's it just goes to show even the simple thing can rule out a guy for so long. Yeah, definitely, especially given they had to land, you know, right on his shoulders to deliver like his key move. So I'll tell you how much that can like, affect him. And yeah, it did feel like, you know, he was like one of the first at the end of 2015 to be bitten by that curse that ended up affecting the following year of WrestleMania where it's like everyone was injured. Him, Bray, Sima, you know, a lot of like big names for that year's Mania and then he comes back and that happens. But I know like, but I remember the stuff with the Wyatts like in 2016, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit when it first happened. But well, the Dino, that would be the best thing he'd, he'd done. And I'd, I'd argue, say, the Wyatt stuff was the best program he'd, he'd been involved in since the Christian stuff. Well, even if, you know, the, the feud ended at WrestleMania 33, where Orton wins the WWE title yet again after winning his second Royal Rumble in at the start of 2017, and only for, you know, the match to be essentially drowned out by holographic projections of bugs on the canvas. Okay, the journey was better than the destination, but you know, right up until the the Wyatt compound got burned down, uh, and Orton was still meant to be the face for some reason. Up until that point, it was the best thing he'd done since Christian. But even then, I'd argue the Christian thing ended badly because I wanted Christian to win that feud. Dark. Uh, I think that's just you know preferred booking decisions. But I think the less we speak about, you know, the WrestleMania 33 match with Bray Wyatt, the better, because I mean, like you said, Scott, the journey was better than the destination. And but Daniel, this is where I, uh, this is where I'm going to have to try and prevent myself from throwing up in my mouth a little bit. But um, immediately following WrestleMania 33, he enters a program with, of all people, Gender Fucking Mahal. Who he would lose to in three straight pay-per-views, one of which I would argue was one of the most boring matches of, <laughs> that I've ever seen in the form of the Punjabi Prison match. You, oh, I was, I was about to be like, oh, I could easily guess what this one is. Um, yeah, they, they they brought the fucking Punjabi Prison back. <laughs> and he brought Kali back for one night as well, just to help him out. But my favourite bit of that night, and no one will take this away from me, is the fact that Kali... Raised Jinder Mahal's hand, but held the belt himself as though he had just won the thing. 
I mean, how do you think? I mean, I, I know we've talked about, you know, Orton putting over up and coming talent, you know, again, the Miz, Mark Henry, Daniel Bryan, all of those guys, though, had legitimate reason, you know, to be booked as a, to be booked the way they did and they'd earned their spot as world champion. But gender was just a bit of an anomaly, really. And for him to not just lose the title in, in really underwhelming fashion at Backlash, but then to go to lose it in front of his Orton to lose the, again in front of his dad and fellow legends at Money in the Bank, and then only to be yet again, you know, faltered by the most immobile superstar anybody's ever seen in the great Kali. Like, how damaging do you think this was for, like, do you think this really hampered Orton's momentum or career progression, or do you think it didn't matter how many times he lost, he was always going to be essentially adored by the fans. Dude, did you list Mark Henry amongst the list of up-and-coming talent? Mark Henry, who by the time he feels... Well, with the, the Hall of Pain gimmick was, you know, the, 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 the main act at the time, but obviously Mark Henry's been around for... He'd been around for a good 15, 20 years at that point. Mark Henry had his first match uh, in the WWE at Mind Games uh, then your interview in September of 1996. He'd been in the WF about as long as I'd been alive. So I don't know if he listed, even if he's gimmicks fairly new, he's not an up and coming talent. I don't care what you say. Mm. But but like, you, you, may, you get what I meant about the Miz and stuff. I think you're know, sort of more the Miz, uh, yeah, Henry, Like the stuff with gender, though, I think it didn't matter to Orton overall. I mean, yeah, maybe he shouldn't have been the WWE champion, not, especially not as long as he, he was and everything. But, you know, Orton. Similarly, has this thing, and we saw it a lot during the end of the 2010s and age, you know, this recent decade, and that it doesn't matter what Orton does, he somehow there's a section of fans he'll always be over with because he's there's just something about him. There's some wrestlers who are over for reasons you can't really explain. Because like in, in 2017, he still got cheered by a large group of the fans after they after burning down a man's house and taking the title, and then he screwed over Rusev and. Yeah, when you look back on it, it was the Arsenal and the Rusev debut, but still got a massive cheer when he fought Rusev at Hell in a Cell that year. Yeah. Speaking of his feud with Rusev, he actually became a Grand Slam champion after winning his first United States Championship. Um, well, obviously he defeated Bobby Roode, but Rusev was... Did he lose that title to? Eh? Who did he lose that US title to? Oh, for fuck's sake, yeah. <laughs> the curse of gender strikes again. Uh <laughs> Who's Randy Orton's greatest rival? Clearly, Jinder Mahal. He's got his number. You yeah. cannot hinder gender. <laughs> yeah, but Daniel, almost you almost forget, you know, after Orton held the United States Championship for a brief while just to sort of complete the Grand Slam, he actually went on to face Jeff Hardy a couple more times after he won it off gender. And, but he ended up, you know, in a losing effort, um, you know, sort of because Jeff Hardy had sort of revitalized himself as a single star following his return in the year prior. But again, you know, injury plagues Orton and he was sidelined as a result. So do you think injuries, again, you know, sort of played a factor in either halting his momentum or do you think wear and tear was just starting to catch up with him a bit? I would say a combination of both. I mean, any injury will halt your momentum. Like you could be on a hot streak and then any little thing can just knock you back like 10 steps. Like most recent example I can think of, CM Punk wins the AEW world title and then announces he's injured his foot. Like instantly, 
his, his triumphant return to the world title picture is on the back foot now. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> but like Orton getting injured like this, it was, you know, you could see that obviously he's he's not going to be like immune to injury. And as I'm sure we'll, we'll mention before the episode ends, like, you know, it, it, it happens, unfortunately. And Orton, like we said, is susceptible to it quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But following his return from this uh, this extra injury, I think it was a, a meniscus tear in his knee, which was a bit of a bit of a shame as well because he'd sort of he was sort of a very solid contender in the upper mid card stage by that point. But then we get that one on one feud with Jeff Hardy where it culminated in the Hell in the Cell match, and again, it, it's it's one of those angles where. It's not something you, you immediately remember about Randy Orton, but when you do remember it, you think, oh, geez, he actually did do that. So there's a couple of you know very unpleasant surprises about how twisted Orton's character could be. And he sort of reverted back to his legend killer gimmick a little bit, given that you know, he was facing a couple of guys who had already established themselves as legends. But I mean, who could we, how could we forget you know, the moments in Hell in a Cell where I think Jeff, hung from the the roof of Hell in a Cell after climbing a ladder only for him to fall into an, to an RKO, but not before being subjected to basically getting a, a screwdriver through his ear hole <laughs> and Orton, you know, doing all these sadistic moves like he used to do when he was in that unhinged phase. Scott, do you think it was a, a bit of a, a welcome relief to sort of see heel Orton again and adopting these very diabolical tactics. Yeah, I think it was a welcome return. It reminded us of a better kind of period in Orton's career, and also getting to see him go back to being a heel was a welcome change. I mean, I mostly remember the LSL match for what uh, an uproar caused in the SSR group because we had a sweep, and part of our bonus question was, will Jeff already jump off the top of the cell? And the argument was, like, should him, like, when he when he dropped from, like, when he climbed up and he dropped from the top and then, like, go through the the table should that count? And I argued it should have counted because even though you may not call it a jump, he still willingly went up there and dropped himself from the top of the cell. Yeah, so, but he didn't jump off. He didn't jump off the cell though. He climbed a ladder, hung onto the roof, and then let go, and he fell off. That's that was he, my argument. Just say he fell would imply he didn't mean to fall. He purposely went up there to then land. He purposely on. let go, and he dropped. He dropped down, and there just happened to be a table beneath him. Like that's not that's not a jump. Okay. He let go. Daniel, he fell down and then just went. Argument. He basically let go and then like landed through the table. At which point, Randy Orton got up and just made it look like there was in that like some horrible disaster that happened. Stood back, held his hands, and just went, "Help! There's been a terrible accident." <laughs> that is literally what happened. Yeah, that was basically it. Yeah. To which Jeff but, looked um, up and went, "Randy, you bastard!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that June the Fat sketch. Like, if you if if there's anybody listening that's never watched June the Fat, you'll um have a watch of it and you'll see that sketch appear a couple of times. It's pretty funny. But um, following the Jeff Hardy feud, he sort of acted like almost a bit of a place filler for a lot of things. You know losing to Rey Mysterio in the first round of the, the WWE World Cup, which was essentially the WWE American Open, if we're calling a spade a spade here. 
uh, and then losing to Mysterio again in a chairs match, only for then for him to compete in the Elimination Chamber, lose again. So losing a lot of big matches, not really sort of making waves, you know, particularly when, you know, more and more superstars would be made in the form of like Kofi Mania and... Uh, Obviously, you know, there was a lot more focus on the women's feuds, such as Charlotte Becky and Ronda Rousey, etc. But there was a bit of a feud with AJ Styles at one point as well. I don't know if you guys have any comments on that, but do you think this sort of felt like a bit of a a bit of a dream match, knowing that these are two hardened veterans with two different backgrounds and seeing these two clash? Did it almost feel a little bit reminiscent of when we saw John Cena versus AJ in 2016? No, not really, because I thought the match was kind of okay, the one they had at WrestleMania, but it was like the second match in the card and the Ruben match of that Mania was like Seth shockingly beating Brock in such quick fashion. So I think people weren't quite as into it as they could have been. Plus, I thought they could have done with like staying in the feud for like one or two pay-per-view matches, but it was kind of a one and done. So I don't really think this, you know, AJ feud was a lot stronger than this one, even though the finish... You knew it was going to be some sort of four-hour Marquiole counter, so you know at least you got that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that point, there was a couple of pals of mine that went to that Mania, and the only thing they can talk about is that this was the match where the audience started yelling, turn the light off, because <laughs> the lights at the top of the, the unit they constructed above the ring, all they were doing was just shining into everyone's direction. Because I know they were trying to get like a general like ambient light thing going on, but they're wanting to watch a match. They don't want to be blinded by red and yellow lights. <laughs> I think that's been a thing of like pretty much all the recent like outdoor manias. Apparently, like pre-pandemic at least, like there's always been an incident where the fans chant something with the lights. I think it happened at Mania 33 as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Again, you know, 2019, it was sort of his career was sort of filled with a lot of place filler matches a little bit. He never won anything big. But again, he reverted back to being a face for a short while, only for then to turn heel again after Edge returned from his neck injuries in the 2020 Royal Rumble, which teased a bit of a a rated RKO reunion, which, Scott, you covered in the first first part of this profile show. And definitely, I think I agree, listening back to it, I think rated RKO should have, you know, been stretched out a little bit longer and it ended way too soon. But on the build to... Sorry? Best mashup theme ever. Don't even at me. Mm. Mm. No, no, I I concur. Yeah, it's a hell of a a mashup theme. You know what? If they could ever do mashup themes that work, they should try and do it more often because you see so many amateur creators on YouTube trying to make something good. And if you go searching for the right themes, you can actually find some real gems, you know, among it. Like, I, I honestly recommend just having a browse through YouTube and you'll find some really great mashup themes. Rated RKO is probably the best example that WWE produced on their own. But amateur creators can really get some good mashup themes going. But Daniel, this is where we sort of enter the pandemic era of WrestleMania. And his feud with Edge actually turned out to be quite quite a well i wouldn't say fulfilling but it was sort of a bit of a throwback a little bit to you know how they competed against each other about 10 years prior and they faced each other in the longest ever last man standing match and then orton won their second match which was billed as the greatest wrestling match ever i think the moniker yeah the moniker was a little something to behold i don't know but uh scott what were you saying there 
It's the greatest wrestling match ever. Give it more gravitas. I got the fucking greatest showman theme song and everything. Okay. Resurrected Howard Finkel. This is the greatest show. I mean, like, how... Like, first off, that match was far too long, the WrestleMania match. Then... It was like 42 minutes, is it not? Or 35 minutes. I think even longer than that. Like, Jeez. I think that, I think this thing nearly went... I'll be honest, my memory of it, it felt like it went nearly 50 minutes. I'm hoping I'm wrong to... I'm hoping they got him wrong. But the... The greatest wrestling match ever! Mm-hmm. Like... It, it definitely wasn't. It was basically them doing the dummy run for what would become the Thunderdome and how they would do the, the matches with that. Mm. The like, put it this way: you know their idea of doing all these different camera cuts and angles was that bad that when they were shooting one of those angles, that was where Edge tore his tricep. Yeah, Edge didn't even tear the tricep in the actual full match; he tore it on a reshoot. I mean, like, that's a, that's a shame. Yeah, and then you've got the the ghost of Howard Finkel announcing them both to the ring. Clearly, audio ripped from Legends of WrestleMania, that long forgotten video game, mm-hmm. which had the bonus feature of you could sync up your roster with that of SmackDown vs. Raw 2009. Hence, those voice clips. And you had Charles Robinson wearing classic 80s referee gimmick as well to add that sort of big fight feel to it as well clearly they couldn't afford a headner hi and um what was it they said on commentary as well like the the sound and the lighting would be enhanced to capture a proper cinematic experience despite there being zero crowd because of the pandemic (laughs) what's that fuck (laughs) (laughs) like they they had like this is when they obviously had started bringing in like the the extras from the performance center so they were littered around the area but you're listening to the audio and you're thinking there is no way the 30 people standing around the the area spaced out are making the noise of several thousand people Mm -hmm. like no way on earth would you buy that Mm -hmm. like does this sort of signify that you know orton was the guy to or one of the guys, rather, to carry WWE at its most difficult of times, even if the booking of certain matches was so outlandish. You know, you'd expect him to be at least a somewhat reliable veteran, even, you know, there had been rumours floating around that he wasn't... Like, there were some cases where he just wasn't interested and didn't really sort of put in 100% effort. Go back to, like, these matches, right? I, I remember being so evaded for the Orton Edge feud, and so like many who I was underwhelmed by that at Last Man's Dynamax, it could have had at least 10 minutes shaved off it. I don't agree with the Dave Meltzer opinion that it was equal to one of the worst matches he'd ever seen, which I think was, or one of the worst WrestleMania matches ever, which I think there's a fair few candidates that could top this. I would match. just say about Dave Meltzer just quickly, he is aware that Kennel from Hell exists, right? <laughs> I hope so. And the Punjabi prison. And like talking All about three like, versions. Yeah, talking about fucking oh, one of the worst right, WrestleMania matches ever. Like I could give you a list off the top of my head that would be far worse. I could do a whole show on Terry on, versus the Cat. You don't know Kate uh, Kelly. Uh, best effort. Kate Kelly had a singles match at a WrestleMania once against Kane as well. Ah, uh, that up and comer Glenn. 
Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure Kanan revived his uh, Jacob Goodnight character a little bit where he was carrying a chain and hook. Even that didn't hook the audience. <laughs> uh, great pun. <laughs> but, uh, but then, like, the match, I think, you know, still in this aside, I actually thought they had a decent match because everyone was getting ready to shit on it. But then I remember, like, consensus being like, it's actually a really good match. That. And then revising the, the Legend Killer thing. So, yeah, he did. He and Drew, like, when they had that feud in the summer, a bit mm. like a natural conclusion, because, like, Orton seemed like be, suddenly became the hottest heel again, despite, like, the, there being no fans. Drew was doing his best to carry the company as champion. Mm. And then, like, it's just a shame that by the time Orton finally won the title from Drew, which felt like he actually started to feel like a natural, like, candidate to take the belt from Drew. But by the time he did, no one cared so much. Okay. So, like, fuck it, we're actually about to survive, so let's give the belt back to Drew. But I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned the Drew feud, Scott, because there were a couple of promos in and thereabouts, like where, you know, on the, I think they were sort of towards the tail end of the performance center and the build to SummerSlam. You had um, Orton reference the fact that, you know, he was, you know, a bit of a knob in his, in his early days of his career, you know, being the, the young, cocky, arrogant rookie who felt untouchable just because of his family's name. And, how he mentioned you know, he'd been suspended a couple of times, you know, for wellness policy violations and stuff. But they kept him. But he mentioned that he stuck. He was able to stick around because not just because of his family name, but because he was damn good at what he did. Whereas he highlighted on the fact that Drew got released in 2014 and had to rebuild his way back up. But Orton always felt like the golden child a little bit, you know, not just to like. Uh, Vince and Stephanie, but also to like Triple H and Ric Flair, his evolution cohorts, and it all to an extent, maybe even the locker room as a whole. Um, Daniel, do you think that was actually quite a quite an underrated promo that Orton delivered? You know, with regards to him acknowledging, you know, his earlier days of his career, and that you know he made some mistakes, but he's evolved into arguably one of the the greatest of all time. Wait. If there's one way you're going to put over Orton's growth as a wrestler, that's how you do it. Because he made his fair share of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And now he's in a point where he's, you know, he's he's happy to admit, you know, hey, I was not a, you know, I was a bit of a naughty boy back then. I can't be doing, you know, these things. I can't be this mean to people. And, you know, the promo established this new maturity in Orton. Like, it's the best way I can describe it. It's like how when you had the promos for Taker and Michaels going into Mania 25, you weren't getting, you know, average Joe Undertaker in his promos. You were getting like a different level of Taker. Because this was a Taker 20 years in, you know, keeping his game going. And likewise, this is Orton nearly 20 years in, keeping up in his game. So the only way it goes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But we now get to a point where, unfortunately, we have to hit another low point of Orton's career, and it is the feud with the Fiend. Yeah, we're going there, unfortunately. And Scott, the feud with the Fiend. Do you think there was potential there, given you know there was the involvement with Alexa Bliss as well, the the teasing of the the fireball in the face, uh, which led to the Firefly Inferno match. Like, and then, obviously, Orton being the 
the sadomasochist that he is, he and the bit of a firebug he is as well. Um, not only does he light Bray Wyatt's house on fire a few years back, but now he lights Bray Wyatt himself on fire as a result. Like, was the execution something to be desired, or do you think it was just a bit of a a bit of a train wreck from start to finish? I mean, it could have gone somewhere because with the whole setting of the Bray Wyatt feud at that point was the fiend remembering those who had who had wronged uh, Bray, and obviously the fire aspect was to go back to the, the house being burnt down during the 2017 feud. So it could have been, been something, but the fact that they stretched the stuff between Alexa and Orton uh, while the fiend was away, I think also it came out earlier on. I think Bray asked for time off because. It's already the end of 2020 was when his good friend uh, Brody Lee passed away. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff on screen with Orton and Alexa got too silly with the whole she throws a fireball in his face, he wears a mask, he wears some weird makeup for two weeks, and Rommel comes out like, oh no, I've, I've miraculously healed because I'm Wolverine. And then then Burnt Fiend came back. What yeah, it? he he did a Wolverine as well. You know, he went from you know Burnt Fiend to Normal Fiend by the time WrestleMania 37 came around. He went from well done to medium rare. <laughs> nice one. And the few oh, well, let's not forget Fastly that year where basically he got reversed cowgirled by Alexa Blaz. He, he said he came back well done. The food ironically was a bit undercooked because <laughs> <laughs> it, it just went on too long, you know. I, I loved how there was the unplayed people said, Oh, you can also tell that's a dummy that he's laying on fire like you actually want him to murder a man live on pay-per-view? Like, what is <laughs> uh, And then, like, the most obvious of obvious bookings that should have happened. Fiend comes back and, and avenges he's lost the man who literally tried to murder him. And he lost because he got distracted by the fact that, like, the blitz had ink on her face. Hmm. Yeah, just an egg running down her face after appearing out of a giant jack-in-the-box. Like, you just couldn't get any madder booking, especially when you've got... There's a bit of childishness about, you know, Bray Wyatt as as Firefly Funhouse Bray Wyatt. And it sort of ties in with the Firefly Inferno match a little bit, given that, you know, it was a sort of Jekyll and Hyde character a little bit, only for... It was basically a very kid-friendly thing that just got dark very, very quickly. And it was Blue's Clues after dark. <laughs> I, have you ever watched that YouTube series? It's like, don't, don't hurt me, I'm scared. Yes! That's what The Fiend reminds me of. It's like, it looks very child-friendly at the beginning, but then the more you watch it, it gets more and more disturbing until it gets to a point where you're just genuinely freaked out by it. Like, that is basically what it was but you know the booking like we said you know alexa bliss with ink running down her face very white uh, seemingly getting burned because that's what people want good old-fashioned murder um and randy orton getting a fireball coming out with a gimp mask and then magically after a couple of weeks hey i don't need it anymore like we we should have had gimp mask orton for a little bit longer but gimp no mask orton, for fuck's sake <laughs> get that going hashtag gimp mask orton um, <laughs> but unf- the revolution begins today. Yeah, unfortunately, though, this feud fell under the Wrestling Observer newsletter uh, worst feud of the year 2021 with against the Fiend and Alexa Bliss. Yeah, and did more Gimp Mask. Uh, <laughs> and but it wasn't just that as well. Like you know, 
his feud with Bray, his feuds with Bray Wyatt did not come across very well in the the WON because 2017 it got worst feud of the year again, and it was worst worked match of the year, uh, the WrestleMania 33 one with the projections on the on the floor. So, uh, yeah, needless to say, you know, as much as Randy Orton was accomplished, you know, he's won things like. Uh, most improved wrestler, most popular wrestler of the year under Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He got wrestler of the year twice. He was ranked number one in the PWI 500 in 2008. Like, these are some big, big accolades, but only for them to um, get, like, worse feuds, you know, at a time where, you know, you felt like he'd be at the peak of his career. It's just a bit of a, a bit of a come down, unfortunately. Although, one thing I will say is... Uh, um, he was recognized. He did get WWE Year End Award for shocking moment of the year where he basically, he screwed Jeff's ear hole with the screwdriver. Would you like to rephrase the wording there, Dave? Um, no, I sounded funnier in my head, but I'll just go with that. Just like, are you sure it was a screwdriver that he used? I'm pretty he, sure it was, yeah. Um, yeah, it was I, a screwdriver. Oh, okay, just, just being sure. He's yeah, a slippery yeah, snake, that's all I'm saying. It definitely was a screwdriver. It wasn't an Allen key. It was the. Uh, he didn't introduce. A... He didn't introduce his viper. <laughs> it wasn't a spanner. It wasn't his viper, shall we say? But, um, but yeah. Needless to say, I think the the feud with the fiend is probably something we'd better forget. And especially, you know, it was the fiend's last match in WWE before being unceremoniously released at a time when, you know, he probably should have had support. As Scott, you mentioned, you know, he was taking time off to mourn the loss of of Brody Lee. But let's round off the this second half of the profile show with arguably some of his best work today, and that is teaming with Matt Riddle to form RK Bro. Uh, we've already explained, you know, I think on not just feature shows on Central and even on Saturday Draft Live, like how effective a team RK Bro has become. But Daniel, I want to get your initial thoughts on, you know, this was a bit of a do you think this was a bit of an odd couple pairing in the same way that sort of Team Hell No was about a decade ago? Like, I'll be honest, I've never been the biggest fan of Riddle always. Just personally for me, I just, I just don't know what it is. It's not been something overly big for me. But there was definitely something intriguing about this idea of him, the kind of laid-back, chill guy he is, teaming up with the seasoned veteran who could be the most manipulative guy on the roster. And it turning into the two guys, essentially, it almost feels like a very weird kind of stoner buddy cop comedy with them two. With how they ended up like becoming towards like the latter stages of it. Mm. And it has become this blessing in disguise. Because all of a sudden, Orton's, you know, we're getting laughs. I mean, I mean, hell, for feck's sake, what was it? Crown Jewel, you get blooming... Riddle on a camel. <laughs> and Orton just looking like, oh, for Christ's oh, sake. fuck's sake, yeah. Like, that, to me, is fantastic. It's up there with, you know, Kane yelling, I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> what about Kane narrating his backstory with uh, Daniel Bryan and <laughs> anger management? And I had this obsession with choke slamming and tombstoning Pete Rose. Hear the shocked faces. Just like, huh? 
And then he's like, I had a girlfriend, but we don't talk about that now. <laughs> I electrocuted a man's testicles one time. <laughs> All I, I, set Jim, I set Jim Ross on fire. <laughs> All those shot faces, including future TNT champion Scorpio Sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Scott, I want to ask you about RK Bro because, you know, I think I agree with what Daniel said. I think Riddle needed a bit of a, a rejuvenation after losing the US title to Sheamus that year. And I don't think they were off on the best of terms to begin with, you know, having a bit of a Twitter spat, but having them getting paired together and almost them sort of becoming best friends the more time they spent together and the more promos they cut. Do you think this was a really good way to sort of see Randy Orton in a light we've never seen before? You know, sort of him take a more serious role in what was actually a bit of a, a comedy angle you know, especially with things like the spelling bee against Alpha Academy and just doing other sort of general knowledge type type segments that it sort of brought out a new side to Orton's character. Do you think that he really embraced it? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, I didn't, I was very skeptical when this team formed because I didn't think they'd get anywhere near the tag titles. I thought it's going to be a couple of weeks. Orton's still technically a healer, then he's going to he's going to turn on him at some point. Uh, I think or, uh, Riddle with Stoner here, I don't think it was connecting as much. So when he got this like, odd couple team, it kind of helped both guys in a lot of ways. One of the funniest, like, one of the other examples of stuff that really made me laugh with these two is when Orton buggered off for a couple weeks before Money in the Bank. And so Riddle wanted to take, take a spot in a match that would help Randy keep his spot. And he, he brought a note that he claimed was from Orton, but was clearly written by him. <laughs> and he just reads out, like, yo. I'd like my ultimate bro Riddle to take part in this match for me. And Adam Pearce was like, "You clearly wrote this yourself. Like you're trying to get out of Jimmy, never. <laughs> your mum and dad." Yeah, but Daniel, do you think there was a bit of uh, resemblance to the Broserweights in NXT? You know, you had Riddle, who was sort of the the fun loving, sort of carefree guy, but who, when you got in the ring, he would rip you a new one. And then you had the almost like the balancing off with a very sort of serious, headstrong competitor like Pete Dunne, who, again, you know, he sort of added a bit of a comedy angle with his own character. But do you think RK-Bro was just sort of the next step up from that? I mean, it wasn't the first time we'd seen that kind of team with, you know, like, Orton and Riddle, even going as far, even with the, like the Bros awaits. Hell, I'd even say, I'd even dare say going back as far as X-Pac and Kane. You know, it's two wildly different competitors teaming up together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it was like you need you need the you need the yin for the yang essentially, and that was the balancing act that Orton and Riddle became for each other, and then naturally allowed you know Orton to come out of a shell a wee bit. There was of course that test that they did, and Orton was able to correctly identify how many grams were in ounce or something like that. <laughs> and, and, and he's just was like, yeah, to... I cook too, bro. We're like, hmm, I wonder how. Yeah, and Riddle was talking about calibrating his scales as well. <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's been good to see this kind of like, you know, lighter side of Orton like, come out the last few while. Mm-hmm. But it like, generated a lot of success and a lot of merch in the process. You know, they became two-time... Raw Tag Team Champions as a team, you know, it was Orton's fourth reign overall, having won it with uh, Edge and Bray Wyatt previously. And, but, I mean, we on one of our past feature shows, you know, we talked about 20 years worth of Cena, but you almost forget that 
back in April, we had 20 years of Randy Orton. And I, I, know, I appreciate, you know, it was a few months back then as that time of recording, but the, the well wishes and the messages of accomplishing of Orton reaching 20 years, I mean, it was just as detailed as, as Cena was getting. And, you know, to cap it all off, you know, he teams not just with his new partner, Matt Riddle, but another rising star in the form of Ezekiel, you know, Elias's brother. <coughs> and what's with that? <coughs> he has uh, his younger he- brother. Uh, it's, well, I mean, Don't tell people- me you're with Kevin Owens and you're, you're a non-believer. God's sake, Dave. I'm not. Hey, yeah, God, you're jumping to conclusions here because I'm just acknowledging, you know, that some people might still be debating it. That <laughs> gave me all that I needed to know. Basically, I'm. I'm on, I was on the fence. I made myself on the fence with that one. I'm like quacko in this situation. Get off the fence. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, Ezekiel, definitely the up and comer who is able to skip NXT and you know make a make a big name for himself on the main roster. But even that, that remarkable when talents can do that. Mm, yeah, really remarkable. But guys, I want to get your thoughts on his reunion with Cody Rhodes as well. You know, Cody came back as the American Nightmare, almost reaching his final form, and. It, it, do you think this sort of came full circle, you know, that, you know, 10 years prior, there was a combination of them teaming together and feeding together. And there was almost like a reunion between teacher and student a little bit. Like, how good of a feel-good moment was that? It was pretty cool. I think, like, we were all waiting for that interaction between the two, given their legacy history and whatever he would acknowledge it and everything. And, you know, I definitely think that, you know, when Orton's healthy enough to come back, you know, after what everyone's assuming that he'll have a feud with Riddle at some point, but I definitely think, you know, as Orton winds down his career, like, one, of the, one of his last feuds should definitely be a, a renewed feud with uh, with Cody. I was just going to say, like, Cody came out on that show, and everyone was thinking the same thing. Adrenaline in my soul, please don't give him an RKO. Cody Rhodes. <laughs> like, it was, like, Cody and Randy now that can easily be a Mania match. But time it right and give oh, us Cody easily. and Randy yeah. at Mania. Failing that, I'll take SummerSlam. Maybe not next, not next year, though, because, I mean, he could be in line with a WWE a Universal title match. But uh, unfortunately, though, his RK Bro runs sort of been put on hold a little bit because of a back injury. Uh, you know, after failing to capture the undisputed tag titles, he's, it looks like he's now been written off for the rest of 2022. Uh, due to his back injury. I think age and wear and tears have sort of caught up with him a little bit, which is, it's a real shame to sort of end the show on a bit of a, a low note. But I want to get you guys' thoughts on, now that we've covered essentially three and a bit hours worth of Randy Orton across two feature shows, I want you guys to tell me, well, for lack of a better phrase, what do you think cements Randy Orton's legacy as one of the the greatest of all time. Now, this could be any particular moments or matches, or even just uh, you know character development throughout his time in WWE. But I want to I want you guys to each give me about thirty seconds to a minute or so. You know what is Randy Orton's legacy as a WWE superstar? Scott, I'll start with you. His legacy is that he had a group called Legacy with Teddy Biasi and Cody Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, well played, well played. I think it's his longevity to kind of would somehow be able to get away with a lot of stuff he maybe shouldn't have, but 
you know, the fact that he can still give us so many memorable like feuds over the years, and I think his other, he's, the main thing about his legacy will be that he will be remembered for having one of the most memorable finishing moves of all time, or just WWE, but just in wrestling in general. Mm-hmm. And Daniel, what do you think? I would say his, his legacy is definitely the fact that he became, it's almost like if you look at how evolution was, Orton became an amalgamation of the others. He became one of the dirtiest players in the game. He became a cerebral assassin and he became an animal. He's the apex predator. Like, Orton took the best bits of everyone he's worked with and presents him as he is now. Like, Orton's legacy is his his continued ability to just evolve and, you know, keep with what he's doing. And when he comes back, like, we'll get more of the same. Uh, you know what? Fair play to you guys. I think you guys delivered a very, very good summary all around. And I like how, Scott, you mentioned, you know, the three most devastating letters, RKO. It's, it definitely solidifies himself as having one of the best finishers that WWE has to offer, given, you know, we discussed the creative spots with Evan Bourne and Seth Rollins, etc., and how he could literally pull it out of anywhere. But, Daniel, I really liked your description about how he became an amalgamation of all his Revolution cohorts. I think that was a very, very accurate description. And, you know, like you said... His time with RK Bro, you know, it's been put on hold, but it definitely goes so he's a chameleon when it comes to adapting his character whichever way, and he can work a face or a heel, probably more towards a heel. But other than that, you know, 20 years of Orton, you know, he's done everything and anything, and it's made him one of the most popular and most successful superstars in history. Uh, definitely a surefire Hall of Fame caliber superstar alongside his OBW uh graduates such as John Cena, Batista, and Brock Lesnar. But that's going to do it for our Randy Orton profile show. The part two has concluded, and that concludes the overall Randy Orton profile as a whole. So thank you, Daniel and Scott, for joining us on this incredible journey of what's been a very decorated career. And I'm sure at some point later down the line, we'll be able to discuss part two of John Cena's career as well. So keep an eye out for that on future feature show recordings so all that remains for me to be said is you know be sure to follow us on social media facebook twitter and instagram at suplex retweet be sure to check out our back catalog on spotify itunes anchor and all good android podcasting sites and don't forget to check out the youtube channel as well where there's a lot of daniel campbell-esque produced content which is worth hours worth of entertainment there so if you're ever got a few hours in your day that you need time, time to kill you know, go check it out. It is some really entertaining stuff. So thank you, Daniel and Scott, for joining me on this journey. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I've been David Haltony, and this has been ESSR's profile show on Randy Orton. And stay tuned for more Central Saturday Draft Live and, of course, more feature shows coming out every week. See you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.